As you look at the definition on the screen of worship, let me, let me ask you, do you think a Christian can worship God by participating in the Olympics? Of course they can. Think about the great Eric Little, the flying Scotsman from a generation ago, who was known to say, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. I'm curious, uh, have you been watching the Olympic Games? How many of you have been watching? So, all at once, tell me, what's your favorite competition? Just speak out loud. Your favorite competition. <clears throat> Whatever it is, all I can say is, I mean, these folks are poetry in motion. I mean, they're really good. In, in his book, Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell contends that it takes 10,000 hours of practice to achieve mastery in a given area of expertise. When applied to the Olympians, I don't know if you know this, I've done some study, they spend between four to six or eight hours a day practicing most days of the week, a cumulative total of maybe 20 to 30 hours a week, and four to six years of practice prior to their Olympic competition. And all I can say is, is wow. And for some of them, those who really perform well, it, it pays off with a placement of a medal. Here's a picture of one of our gold medal winners, Chloe Kim from Southern California, who won the women's half-pipe snowboarding competition. If you look carefully at that slide, you'll see a formula at the bottom to which I'm sure most Olympians would subscribe. They would say that skill plus determination plus discipline leads to success. And yet for the Olympians, it goes beyond practice. One report I read said only 17% of the final product is a result of practice. They also put a lot of stock in certain kinds of sleep. I mean, restorative sleep. The Olympians put a lot of emphasis in their diet, a certain kind of diet. And they put a lot of emphasis on mental preparation. I think it's important for us to learn from our Olympians. We must learn. I think it's biblical to learn what they've learned in a spiritually applied way. Tonight... Pray for me. I've been assigned to teach Proverbs chapters 16 through 31. I hope you brought your pajamas. I feel a bit like a cook at a smorgasbord brunch. Anybody ever go to a smorgasbord brunch today? Those are fun, aren't they? You, you can't eat everything that's out there. At least you shouldn't try to eat everything. But they're really good. You try a little of this, a little of that. Uh, as a cook, as a spiritual cook, as a spiritual dietitian, I'd like you to sample everything that's in Proverbs 16 through 31. But I counted up the verses. That's 475 verses. Yeah, not wise. So I'm going to have to choose to serve you one dish tonight that I've chosen to call the rewards of personal discipline. It's a main course but I believe it has several different ingredients that we can learn from tonight. So 
Rather than run you hither and yon through all of these chapters, I'm going to flash the verses up on the screen for you from the book of Proverbs that I've chosen to address. And uh, these 16 chapters we're going to be looking at advertise the benefits of a disciplined lifestyle. And here's a verse I want you to consider from Proverbs 16.3. If you commit your work or works to the Lord, your thoughts or your plans will be established. As a counselor, I have to constantly remind people, don't let your emotions be your driver. They ought to be the caboose in the train, not the engine. Sometimes when you don't know what to do, you just have to do the next thing. You simply have to engage Get busy, go, do. You must commit your activities to the Lord, and eventually your emotions and even your thoughts sometimes will, will catch up. Our work tonight <clears throat> is to establish disciplines in four primary areas. In, in a sense, I, I want to challenge you in some things that maybe you haven't considered or maybe you wouldn't like to do. John Wesley was known to say, he said, I try to do one thing every day I dislike doing for the pure discipline of it. What a goal. Tonight I want to talk about diet and work and parenting and speech. I'm going to give you an overview of the first three and spend a little bit longer time on the last one. I'm defining the word discipline in the plural tonight. I'm talking about personal disciplines or spiritual disciplines. And if you've got your paper and you want to spank the blank, let me give you a definition here for you. Spiritual disciplines are those practices that we impose upon ourselves to make us spiritually fit and healthy. Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training, like the Olympics, is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the life that now is and the life which is still to come. So we're going to look at these ingredients, these disciplines. Let me start tonight with the discipline of diet. We're going to begin in Proverbs 23, verses 1 through 3. Understand the context. You've been invited to a meal with the hoi polloi, with some impressive people, some political types that have power and prestige and money and they're very impressive, and you are impressed to be there, and they're trying to sway you. Verse 1, when you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you. And put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. These verses warn us about more than gluttony. They warn us about being negatively influenced by evil power brokers who try to buy our allegiance by feeding us fine food. And let's face it, if we go to somebody's house and it's really impressive and they're impressive and they're trying to bend our ear about something, we, we kind of want to pay back. They paid it forward. We want to pay it back. They, these folks are so nice. They've been so kind and they're trying to bend us a certain direction and Frankly, we may feel indebted to them. Now, the point is, is well taken that food is often the thief of the soul. You may have noticed this. I've noticed this in, in my decades of ministry that the subject of gluttony is not one we often address in our messages 
in our churches. Uh, to borrow a phrase from the late Jerry Bridges, it's probably one of those respectable sins, especially over the holidays. We all look the other way when we overeat at the holiday table. But portion control is an extension of self-control. Far too many Christians have dug their own grave by using their fork. Maybe the greatest workout exercise would simply be to push away from the table. Now, I confess I like sweets. When I walked in past the cookies before the service tonight, knowing I was going to preach, I didn't want to eat one, but I did select one because I'm a chocolate connoisseur. I love dark chocolate. I chose the chocolate cookie back there with chocolate chips in it, and I put it in my office. Nobody go in there and steal that from me, okay? <laughs> I like sweets. Every morning, I put honey in my oatmeal. Do I have any other oatmeal eaters out there? I learned that from dad and mom on the farm, and we, we used honey in our oatmeal. And apparently, the uh, the ancients loved honey, too. Here's a couple of uh, verses for you. Maybe they loved it too much. Uh, 25, 16, if you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. Pretty expressive. Verse 27 adds, it's not good to eat too much honey. So the point is to go easy on the sweets. Several years ago, my wife, Karen, and I went to Williamsburg, Virginia, that wonderful colonial city on the East Coast. You've been there? I highly recommend it. Wow. The ambiance, the architecture, it's so endearing to go back in time and walk the streets where the patriots, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson walked. It really is a fun place to go to. And uh, I think Karen might have been shopping, but I... I uh, I took a, a walking tour with a guy. I don't know if he was speaking apocryphally or not, but he started talking about Thomas Jefferson and his wife, Martha. This was before he became the third president. And he said, Martha um, was a diminutive little lady. Uh, she gave birth to uh, six of Thomas's, Thomas Jefferson's kids. But uh, because they were the gentry class, they had access to sugar, unlike the commoners. And they would eat sugar out of cones like we eat ice cream. And he spoiled his wife, Martha, and he, he fed her a lot of sugar. And, and by the time she was ready to deliver, she had grown rather large. And she gave birth to an 11-pound baby. Scientists conjecture now she probably suffered from diabetes, but she did not survive that birth. At least she died four months later. Little Lucy, her sixth-born, did survive although only two of her children, of her six, made it to adulthood. Yeah, my point is, seriously, we have to go easy on the sweets. That's from the Bible. Now, back to chapter 23, verse 29 through 35. Let me read this for you. A series of questions to which Solomon provides an answer. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. 
Your eyes will see strange things. Your heart utter perverse things. He uses an image that maybe it's hard for us to identify with, but if you can go back in time and imagine the sailing ships driven by the wind going up to the very top on the mast, he draws on that analogy. You will, verse 34, be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on top of a mast. Can you imagine how seasick you get up there on the top of the mast going back and forth? And what does the person who's like that say who's drunk? They say, they struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? And when I awake, what do I say? I must have another drink. Obviously, Solomon addresses the uh, challenges, the dangers of alcohol. There's a part of me that wishes I could bring every one of you into my office when I'm counseling the addicted, those who are addicted to alcohol or drugs. I wish you could feel their pain and feel their sorrow. Those rhetorical questions in verses 29 and 30 are meant to get us to think, who is it that has woe? Who who is it that has sorrow and strife and complaining and wounds? In context, the answer is obvious. In chapter 20, verse 1, Solomon says, wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging and whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. So my admonition is simply this. Think before you drink. I think we'll come to agree with Solomon's assessment in verses 19 through 21. See him on the screen there. Hear, my son, and be wise and direct your heart in the way. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. Intemperance in food and drink will bring one to poverty, and they often bring down resistances, allowing other kinds of temptations to be indulged upon, including sexual immorality, which are addressed in verses 26 through 28. I wonder how many children are conceived when one or other of the people involved are inebriated or, or high. I wonder how many people sustain STDs, sexually transmitted diseases, while they're under the influence and never intended such a thing to to happen. So Solomon is giving a word of warning and caution here about your diet, what you eat and what you drink. He does give a promised reward in verses 17 and 18. Here it is. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Here's the promise. Surely there's a future and your hope will not be cut off. That's the first ingredient in this discipline of uh, our spiritual life. Let me go to discipline number two, the discipline of work. We must avoid laziness. Proverbs has much to say about the slothful. You see a listing, an extensive listing on the screen of all the verses that speak to slothfulness. Now, I love the humor that Solomon uses in a couple of these texts. For example, in 26, 14, and 15, he uses two verses to talk humorously about the slothful. In in verse 14, as a door turns on its hinges, so does a slugger on his bed. Now, let's imagine you're a door with hinges right in the middle, okay? And you're asleep, and the alarm clock goes off. And your hinges, 
they're, they're a little rusty and they squeak. So the alarm goes off. The alarm goes off, you sit up in bed, and then you think, I have this sudden urge to get up and work. I think I'm going to lie down until the urge goes away. Like a door with hinges, so is the lazy man who lies back down again. The next verse says, (laughs) the sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. He's so lazy he can't feed himself. He wants somebody else to feed him. Have you seen that commercial that's airing right now of the little fat kid, lazy kid? They're advertising so he'll get some exercise. He's lying on the couch or his bed, and his grandma's in the next room, and he makes a phone call and says, Grandma, bring me another grape soda. That's a kid that's kind of following the train of this particular verse. It's good to be industrious. It's good to work hard. I, I believe our society has, has struggled with a lack of ingenuity and industry. And there is a warning to welfare recipients who refuse to work. Welfare is not bad, but for those who refuse to work, Paul the Apostle says, if a man will not work, neither should he eat. That's the biblical principle on working hard. There's a reward promised to those who are diligent. Look at 21.5. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. And 20 verse 13 Love not sleep lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes and you will have plenty of bread. Pastor Chuck last Sunday night addressed the illustration of the ant from chapter 6 in Proverbs. We ought to consider the ways of the ant, their industry. This morning, Pastor Pat talked about the industry, the energy, the work ethic of Rebecca in watering all those candles, and he alluded to Proverbs chapter 31. Verses 10 to 31 outline for us the virtuous woman, and this is what it says about her work ethic. She looks well to the ways of her household. She does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. So we need to teach our kids to work hard, to be diligent, give them chores around the house. I recommend if you have teenage children, urge them to get a job, to learn how to make money, how to handle money. That's a good discipline to be learned when they're young, to bear the yoke in their youth, Jeremiah says. And that leads me to the third Discipline ingredient in our text, the discipline of parenting. Here we're talking about child discipline. And again, you see all kinds of verses that speak to this. Your parents may want to write them down and do a study on your own. I want to read just a a couple of them from chapter 23, verse 13 and 14. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. (laughs) They may protest like they're going to, but they will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol, from death, or from hell. 
Scripture teaches using a rod to discipline your children. That would be a stick or a paddle, maybe a wood spoon to be used on the bottom, the appropriate place to discipline children. Remember, there are three reasons for the rod, disrespect, lying, and deliberate disobedience. And remember, delayed obedience is disobedience, partial obedience is disobedience. So when your children disobey, turn their globe on its side and brush off both hemispheres. There's a graphic picture for you. <laughs> now, I can, I can almost hear the wheels turning. Some of you here don't believe in using the rod. I'm not talking about abuse. You don't use a closed fist. You only apply the rod to the bottom. We're not to be abusive, but I do want to be biblical. I do want to obey Scripture, and this is what God says about you and your children. Look at it again. Do not withhold discipline from the child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. You will save his soul from death, from Sheol, from hell. Whoa, that's God's command to you, parent. 22.15 reinforces this principle. Foolishness or folly is bound up in the heart of the child, but the rod of discipline, the rod of reproof will drive it far from him. 29.17, discipline your son, he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. That last verse is really the promise, the reward that's made to parents who discipline their kids. There is the reward. He will give you rest. He will bring delight to your heart. I wish I had time to spend on these three disciplines more, but I, I want to take the remainder of my time and, and talk to you about my burden for the discipline of speech or communication. Hopefully you've got that sheet, you picked it up, because I want you to turn it over and look to the back side, because I'm going to be alluding to this chart here, this uh, from uh, Norman Wright. You'll see these communication guidelines that are outlined for you. I want to address them. Um, again, I'm not going to allude to all the verses on here because I don't have time, but I'll try to allude, allude to most of the verses that are drawn from Proverbs. And I, I, I want to start with the verse at the very top, or before item number one, Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. It's likening you to the tree of life. Book of Revelation 22, of course, a picture of Jesus Christ, but we're an extension of him. He's the vine, we're the branches. When you speak the right kind of words, you are a tree of life. You produce fruits every month, and you have leaves for the healing of the nations, i.e., for those around you. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. We need to learn how to use our tongue appropriately. Let no corrupt no cutting, no garbage communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good for the use of edifying, that it may build up, that it may give grace to the hearers, Ephesians 4, verse 29. We ought to be an instrument of blessing with our tongues and impart life. Now, let me read each of these 10 guidelines quickly and make reference to the Proverbs passages that are cited over to the right. 
Here, here is communication guideline number one. I use these regularly in my counseling. If you've counseled with me, you may have received a copy of these already. Number one, be a ready listener and do not answer until the other person has finished talking. Now, my wife and I are getting close to our 43rd wedding anniversary. I'm still trying to learn. Still trying to learn. Trying to do her the courtesy of listening all the way through when she wants to share something and not interrupting, not trying to retort. And she appreciates it when I look at her. She'll say to me sometimes, Kurt, listen to me with your eyes. <laughs> okay, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I loved Easy Zwayne a few weeks ago when he was speaking at our marriage conference. He says, you know, wives, maybe you need to tape your husband's cell phone to your forehead so that he's forced to look at you. <laughs> There's something about eye-to-eye -eye contact, eyes are the window to the soul. My wife has a little quote at home about technology taking us away from those who are close to us. Technology brings us close to those who are far away but takes us far away from those who are close. It's true. Do not let technology interfere with your relationships at home, especially at the family dinner hour. Be a ready listener. Do not answer until the other person is finished talking. I don't know if you struggle with this. I think you probably do when your partner or somebody else is laying the wood on you, and in your mind, you're not listening, you're, you're, you're putting bullets in the chamber, you're ready to retort, and you're going to shoot him or her down once they're finished talking, maybe before. Don't do that. Shut it down. Listen carefully. Take notes. Try to repeat what they're saying. Is this what I'm hearing you say? Don't try to be so defensive, but listen to what they're saying. That shows respect. Verse 13 of Proverbs 18 says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame. This is the verse in biblical counseling that we do well to adhere to. I have to listen sometimes maybe 45 minutes straight to someone that comes in for counseling because I want to understand what's going on. There's an old quote I've, I've long ago memorized. When you don't listen, you assume and here's the quote, to assume is to err. Mark it down, write it down. To assume is to err. Number two on our communication guidelines list, be slow to speak, think first. Don't be hasty in your words. Speak in such a way that the other person can understand and accept what you say. And here's several verses from Proverbs. 15.23, to make an apt answer is a joy to a man and a word in season, how good it is. 15.28, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. 21.23, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. And finally, 29.20, did you see a man who is hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool. And for him, don't be quick to speak. I often assign memory work for my counselees when they're struggling. And that verse that I assign is, is over to the right, James 1, 19. Let every man be quick to hear, slow to speak, 
and slow to get angry. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to get angry. James 1, 19. Number three on our list, speak the truth always, but do it in love. Do not exaggerate. Ephesians 4, 15, speak the truth in love. I don't have time to go into it, but if you go online, if you Google four communication rules from Faith Church in Lafayette, they have a good little outline from Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. Be honest, keep current, attack the problem, not the person, and act, don't react. Four communication guidelines, Faith Lafayette, Indiana. Good little tool. Let me go on. Number four, do not use silence to frustrate the other person. Explain why you're hesitant to talk at this time. Usually opposites attract in marriage, for example, and one really wants to get into it right away. They want to solve the problem. They're like white on rice, like ugly on ape. I mean, they're going after it. And often they're married to somebody who needs time to chill down, to cool off, and they don't want to talk. The other person, no, you will talk. You will talk. We will solve this now. <laughs> Doesn't work. Now, you got to compromise, you got to resolve it, but if you're of that aggressive type, let me recommend you ask your mate, is there a time when we can get back and work this through? And you give hope to your mate if you're married, or maybe it's your boss, or maybe it's your sibling, or maybe it's somebody in the church, and they get, they get silent, and they go into the deep freeze, and they don't want to talk. Give them hope by saying, can I come back in a half an hour and we'll try to talk this through? Give you time to chill and to work it through and think it out. Go out, Lou Priello calls this the think room, where you go and think and you, and you compare what you're thinking with scripture. All right, number five. Do not become involved in quarrels. It's, it's possible to disagree without quarreling. What are we talking about? We're talking about volume, we're talking about tone, we're talking about voice inflection. Do you know that fully 70% of communication comes from body language, not from our words? 70%! <laughs> if I were to do right now to all of you, mannequin freeze! What does your posture in this moment tell me about you, where you are? Some of you just woke up. <laughs> Posture means a lot. What we're saying with our body language. Again, volume, inflection, tone. The Proverbs 17, verse 14. It says, the beginning of strife is like letting out water. Go down to Cedarville Dam and think about the overflow. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. The point is the smallest break in the dam sets loose an uncontrollable Flood force. Just a little break, little breach. Proverbs 20, verse 3, it's an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. Number six, do not respond in anger. Use a soft and kind response. Proverbs 14, 29, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. 15, 1, 
I recommend you memorize. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. 25.15, with patience a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. 29.11, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Number seven, when you are in the wrong, admit it. I sometimes ask couples, uh, come in for counseling. So are you, are you quick to forgive? <laughs> are you quick to ask forgiveness? And I find a lot of folks struggle. When you're in the wrong, admit it and ask for forgiveness. When somebody confesses to you, tell them you forgive them. Be sure it is forgotten and not brought up to the person. By the way, when you apologize, make sure you're doing it in an appropriate way. This is not an apology. Well, if I did something wrong, I'm sorry. That's not an apology. You need to own it, take responsibility for it, and then ask, will you forgive me for sitting against you? And then you stop there. Don't go on with an excuse. But you stop it. Even if in your mind they're more in the wrong, stop it. Shut up. Let God work on them. You can't change their heart. You're only responsible for you. And then you need to choose to forgive them, whichever side of the issue you're on in that particular regard. Number eight, avoid nagging. <laughs> I'm not going to cite those proverbs there, but I will give you one that's got a little bit of humor to it that's not in this margin. Here, here it is. It's on the screen. A continual dripping. Do we have that one? Did you get that one loaded in? There it is. A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. Okay. Or a quarrelsome husband. Okay, we'll go both ways. <laughs> Avoid nagging. Number nine, do not blame or criticize the other person. Instead, restore, encourage, edify. If someone verbally attacks, criticizes, or blames you, do not respond in the same manner. And finally, number 10, try to understand the other person's opinion. Make allowances for differences. Be concerned about their interests. Okay, 475 verses reduced down to a bare minimum. I've still given you a, a full meal deal. I think I supersized it nevertheless. I hope you'll take something of benefit away from one of these categories, diet, work, child discipline, or communication. But I, I hate to teach, preach without giving a challenge. You ought always, when you listen to God's truth, ask the question, so what? What am I going to do with this? If you don't do something with it, your heart will harden. So we've got to say, okay, what am I going to do with this? So here's the challenge I want to give you. Okay, here's the challenge, and I'll, and I'll quit. I'm going to give you the 30-day challenge. I do this in my office for couples or people that are struggling, 30-day challenge. Now, you, you can do this with anybody you consider an irregular person in your life. You know, someone that rubs you the wrong way. You know, they're, they're like a porcupine. They have, they have their good points, but they're hard to get close to, you know. There's people in your life like that. 30-day challenge. For the next 30 days, you think of that person, maybe your mate, maybe your boss, maybe your neighbor. I don't want you to say anything negative to them in the next 30 days. Nothing negative at all. 
And practicing the Ephesians 4 principle of the replacement, putting off the old and putting on the new, principle of replacement, instead of not, instead of giving them something negative, for the next 30 days, I want you to compliment them with one thing every day. Affirm them, thank them, praise them. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You don't know what this person's like. What am I going to say? You're going to have to ask the Holy Spirit to help you to be gracious and honest. And uh, if you can only find one good thing, repeat it for 30 days in a row. Nancy Lee DeMoss Wolgamuth from Life Action Ministries gives this to ladies, and she said she's seen instance after instance where it's dramatically turned a marriage around when they simply practice the 30-day challenge. So will you do it? I don't want you to leave the night and say, well, that was a nice talk, Kurt. I, I, I want you to go home, and I want you to do the 30-day challenge with somebody in your life that you at times are a little bit at odds with. I can't make you do it, but I want to challenge you. Will you do it? Lord, help us. We've looked at a lot of stuff tonight. Proverbs is so full of wisdom. And we have chosen to just eat off of one plate with these ingredients of diet and work and child discipline and then how we talk with our tongue. We've got to choose. We've got to ask the Spirit to control us. And I, so I, I pray, Lord, that that you would help these dear people to pick up this 30-day challenge and to apply it starting, starting tonight with someone who is an irregular person in their life. And may they see that relationship turn around as they practice the life of Christ and the control of the Holy Spirit and bring discipline to bear upon their Christian testimony. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.